Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I am back from paternity leave and so happy to be back for the playoffs. And my guest is Jared Dubin of 538 and other outlets. And we focus on what we've seen in the first round so far. We're not going to give as tight a focus on every series as we will on the ones that interest us the most. But of course, there's still a lot to discuss. And this episode is brought to you by our new sponsor, FanDuel. Go to FanDuel.com slash Boston to get $200 in guaranteed bonus bets for a when you place your first $5 bet. I'll talk a lot more about that later. Lots of great stuff here with Mr. Dubin, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It was a good time. I was thinking about, I mean, there's a lot of ground to cover. We have eight series going on now, none of which have formally resolved yet. And what I realized was kind of a good way of putting this into focus. And this is not, I don't see the basketball as title or nothing as a, as a construct, but I do think that sometimes it's good to look kind of beyond where we are. And so what I wanted to start with with you is, has this first week of playoff basketball changed, the, changed how you're thinking about the title picture, and if so, how? I would say it's changed a little bit but more on the margins than like teams necessarily moving in and out of contendership, if that makes sense. Like I didn't think any of the lower half East teams were, you know, real title contenders. I still don't think that Um, I was relatively lower on the lower half West teams than some other people were. And I think I'm still mostly there. I think I'm a little bit lower on Phoenix than I was at the start of that series against the Clippers, just the the math problem that they have to deal with because of their mm-hmm. shot selection is so big, I guess, and just the it really hammers home the the lack of depth that they have beyond their top four guys, and how much at least one of their top four guys really can't be counted on on a game to game basis. Um, I'm, I'm talking about Aiden on that front, and then Chris Paul on a age and injury front. Um, so I would say that my opinion of them has changed a little bit and my opinion of Philly has changed a little bit because of how much they, the Nets have been able to take the ball out of Embiid's hands with their aggressive doubling and trapping and how Harden looks physically. I would say I'm a little bit lower on those two teams than I was coming into the playoffs. But other than that, not much has changed all that much. What, where are you at? Broadly speaking, I think what has been the adjustment for us, so I, I agree with both what you're saying, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about both those to, those two teams. But so I had seen it that, to me, the, the top two teams in terms of title odds for me were the Celtics and the Bucks in kind of either order, depending on how you feel about things. And the first week, to me, has primarily weakened some of the other teams. I don't know that I feel better about the Celtics' chances right now. They're playing the Hawks. I don't know that there's much they could do. Dispatching them, broadly speaking, the way they did in the first two games at the TD Garden, that's good. You know, you didn't do anything wrong, and with the Bucks. Giannis makes me, you know, like if that if this issue recurs, but we don't we don't we don't have enough time yet. We haven't seen where where that's going. But not only the the Suns and the Sixers, you brought up uh, you brought up Harden and and I think some of the stuff with Embiid. Also, like a reminder that Embiid seems like he's always dealing with something is something mm-hmm. that is lingering with me. But for me, it's some of the more ancillary teams that's like oh, you know, if they put it together and so. 
The Clippers, most obviously, just because I don't know if they're going to be truly healthy. Like, I don't know if they're going to be healthy enough to survive to possibly being healthy. And Kawhi Leonard's knee sprain is so deflating for that reason, and hopefully he can play in Game 4. I'm skeptical that he can play in 4. And then for the Warriors, yes, they could make it out, and winning Game 3 was essential, but their their pathway to like winning the West, to winning a title, especially when they're going to be probably the inferior seed for most of these series unless the Lakers end up beating the Grizzlies which would be interesting but so generally speaking though like and Memphis is another one of those teams like I feel worse about Memphis's chances but I was already low on that after the Steven Adams injury so I don't know that I feel so much better about the top two but knocking out knocking down not out down some of the other teams gives them more equity yeah, I'm basically in the same spot with the same two teams. And I think I feel a little bit better about Denver than I did, despite that ridiculous third quarter that they played the other night against Minnesota, which was like one of the worst things I've seen in my entire life. Um, I, I feel a little bit better about them just because, you know, they know who their, I would say, they know who their six guys are, I would say, for the most part. They have, obviously, they've been playing uh, Christian Brown and Jeff Green behind those six guys, too. And, and I think that those guys can hang on the floor for you know, 10 minutes a night or whatever they need him to be. Um, Cutting out the backup center minutes and going with Gordon and Jeff Green in the front court when Jokic is on the bench, I think has been helpful. Um, So I'm, I'm, I would say slightly more confident in them than I was before. And Milwaukee, as long as Giannis isn't out like beyond this, like I think they can take care of the heat in this round, even without Giannis, Um, as long as he's not out beyond that and isn't like really affected Beyond that, I don't feel any worse about them than I did before. Oh, one other team to add in that of the kind of like, I thought they had low end and I'm, I'm weakening on them is the Cavs. Like Cleveland, there's a lot that I like about them, but the clear issues with their fifth guy and tactically, execution wise, they did a lot better in game two than game one. I'm very interested. You know, we're recording this middle of the day on Friday. Game three will occur in a few hours, but in terms of, like, I could see them absolutely win the series. I think that series is one of the more interesting ones to be. But I also don't think either team is coming out of this winning two more to win the East and then competing in the NBA Finals. Yeah, no, I mean, both of them, whoever wins that series, they have to go play the Bucks next. And that, right. I think that they are the worst matchup in the bracket for both of those teams. Um, it's just, the you know, the misfortune they have of the Bucks having... Um, you know, surpass the Celtics for the number one seed over the second half of the season. I think they would have both matched up better with Boston. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Cavs, the, the issue is sort of the same as it is with Phoenix. Like beyond the top four guys, I don't trust anybody in their rotation. Like I know Karis LeBert had a very good game two. He was awful in game one. Um, and it's just, he's not the kind of player that you can, can trust to be consistently as good or as impactful as he was in game two. It wasn't like Carousel figured out something, found a gap within the the defense, and so all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, that's going to work moving forward. Now, one thing that J.B. Bickerstaff did do well and deserves credit for was doing more guard-guard, more perimeter screening rather than using their bigs. I thought that did a nice job kind of taking the Knicks out of their game a little bit. Of course, the Knicks will develop new wrinkles. They will develop adjustments. That's the way this works, but... That isn't like it isn't the idea of like oh okay now you've solved the Rubik's cube now you just keep doing it over and over again it's they they did some things well they did the play better adjustment as our mutual friend Seth Partner likes to say but I didn't see anything that just was a game breaker truly 
Yeah, I mean, I think Mitchell has kind of figured out how to attack that Knicks defense. And I think Garland figured out a bunch of things out in game two. And Tibbs is not the biggest, I'm going to make adjustments kind of guy. True. Um, So, you know, I think a lot of their adjustments might have to come on the other end. Or like, will they actually make a rotation adjustment to respond to what Cleveland's doing? Especially with how much pressure they put on Brunson when he had the ball in game two like will they get another ball handler out there instead of you know letting rj Barrett brick a bunch of shots like he has been um basically throughout his entire playoff career which is you know one and a half series old at this point but i'm not sure that he's had a good game in the playoffs yet and he's not played particularly well in recent weeks and like this is the series that should be relatively on the easier side for him cleveland doesn't have like these wings that are gonna you know go after him or or even really guard him all that well and uh it has not been good for him um granted neither emmanuel quickly nor quentin grimes has been particularly good in these first couple games either quickly in the second half of game two was a little bit better but he was really bad in game one and then basically didn't play in the second half of game one because that uh that first game brunson got in foul trouble like three minutes in and then quickly had to play the rest of the first half and it just was not good. Um, it was good to see him getting a rhythm in the second half. And, you know, you would think that he'll be more in line with how he was during the regular season, uh, you know, through the rest of the series. But, I mean, the, the Barrett minutes have become, uh, I think, an issue for them. And I'm not sure how that gets solved without changing the personnel on the court. And that's like, that's up to Tibbs, who we know doesn't really do that. It ties in with something that is always so hard for a front office, for a coach. And remember, the interplay between those does matter. Where I just don't think there's anything... There's a funny parallel to players that I've generally liked less than the consensus of R.J. Barrett and D'Angelo Russell. Where, for both of them, in this iteration of their starting five, I just don't know what exactly they're, they're supposed to do, what their competitive advantage is, what they do better than their teammates. And so I'm not saying play Josh Hart 48 minutes, play RJ Barrett zero, but the intensity that Hart plays with some of the rebounding, when his, you know, when his ankle is healthy enough and all that type of stuff, like I think what Hart gives them, especially in a series like this, is more important than what Barrett gives them. And that doesn't mean it's a permanent thing. And RJ Barrett's a young guy who seems like he works hard on his game. But that, like, and I think that's part of the Grimes thing too, is like, okay, they have a point of attack defender now who's who I think does that pretty well. And Grimes doesn't make every shot and he doesn't take a ton of shots, but he's respected out there and all that. And so they don't have phenomenal like RJ Barrett replacement options, but they have enough viable ones that I think they should move, shift more in that direction, oh, broadly speaking. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I think it's been an issue for a little bit and they, they clearly have like, They have four wings that they'll play, basically, if you count quickly, who is both a backup point guard and a guy who can play next to Brunson. Like, they have three guys that they can use instead of him in any combination that they want. And if he's not making his shots, like, I just don't know what what the purpose he serves out there is. Like, he should be able to, you know, attack closeouts from the weak side and make the open jumpers that he's being given, but that's just not really been the case for the significant majority of this season um something my, one of my friends pointed out though Hart will come in at you know the the four-ish minute mark of the first quarter and then he just doesn't come out the rest of the half and same thing in the second half he'll come in at the four-ish minute mark of the third quarter and then he doesn't come out the rest of the half like there, you don't need to do that you can start him and give him a rest or you can give him a rest for a couple minutes here or there like especially with the ankle thing like you don't need to play him 
16, 18 consecutive minutes or whatever it is. Like, you have other guys that you can put out there. Like, a lot of times it'll be, you know, Grimes will play the whole first quarter and then not play in the second quarter at all, and, and Barrett will get that second rotation. Like, you can make, you know, you can make quickly come back in at the end of the half and give hard a rest, or you can bring Grimes back in. Like, I, I don't know. It's just very rigid the way that they do things, except apparently, like, quickly can have his minutes cut at a moment's notice, but Hart has to play the entire rest of the first half, and Barrett has to get his minutes no matter how poorly he's shooting. It's just, uh, it's it's very strange the way they handle those minutes. The guy who I think of sometimes for this is, is Jose Alvarado, where it seems clear a fair amount of the time, I think more last year than this year. I mean, he was his absence was definitely significant for the Pels in the play and, in, and of course, the end of the season. Is if you think somebody is one of your five best players, bringing them off the bench creates a whole bunch of problems for your rotation. Because mm. you you just have, in order to get them the minutes you think they deserve, it, it largely involves these long stretches. Like, I mean, Nate uses, the, you know, the Keith Bogans and the Miritich. And so Keith Bogans is the idea of a guy who starts both halves and then never comes back in. And then the Miritich was the reverse, which was Miritich would come in off the bench and, you know, kind of normal timing and then not come out again. And I don't think that's particularly healthy. The Warriors ran into this with Iguodala at, at times as well, where they didn't want to start Draymond at the five. And so they had Iguodala coming off the bench and then he's playing like 19 minute stretches and he's like 34 years old and it didn't really make a lot of sense. And so the... Two different ways you can do that to me. One is you just start the dude. Like you can, you can of course do that with Josh Hart at the, you know, Alvarado and everything else. Or something teams don't do very often, and I understand why, is I call it the quick hook. And what I mean by that is I'm talking one of your starters comes out four minutes into the game. Like really, really short stretch because then that just buys you a little bit more risk. If you wait until the seven or like if you wait until seven or eight minutes have passed in the, in the quarter slash half, to make any sort of adjustment, then you're narrowing the windows. But you could you could open that up a little bit. Now, doing that and not starting the guy is a little bit weird, unless you're talking about like matching up center only versus center only minutes, like for somebody like Valanchunas. But those to me are the two different avenues you can get into where at least you're buying yourself a, you're buying yourself some wiggle room. Yeah, I mean, I think you can run into you know the reverse issue. I guess you you described it as the Bogans. Um, I mean, it's also, I mean, to go with another Tibbs guy, Ronnie Brewer, mm-hmm. um, like it, it, you run into an issue where if a guy who's not one of your five best guys is starting, then unless you're going to Bogans or Ronnie Brewer them, then all of a sudden you're giving minutes to a guy who, you know, there might be better ways to distribute those minutes. And this isn't like to pick on Barrett, who I thought coming into this season was like a guy who should help teams for a while and just hasn't really been that throughout a lot of this season. And then, you know, he'll have the stretches where, you know, for two weeks he's making 40% of its threes and people are like, this is why you never give up on him. And it's like, well, yeah, but we know that doesn't last, you know, like neither of the stretches of what he does tend to last all that much longer than a few weeks at a time, which is why it gets so frustrating all the time. (laughs) It's a great point. Uh, I I want to transition to the, Lakers Grizzly series, which has unfortunately shifted due to injury. We'll see what John Morant's availability is moving forward. They play again on Saturday. But the idea that Styles makes fights and you were dealing a lot with the playoffs and, and something that came up, particularly in game two, was the role of Anthony Davis defensively. And so if the Lakers can have Davis 
defending someone other than the other team's like best front court player, it allows him to do significantly more. And he had you know seven, I think it was seven blocks in game one, and he had a, a solid defensive game two as well, but not as dominant. And he had a way worse offensive game two, but. That whether that is tenable depends as much on, if not more, on the opposing personnel as it does the Lakers personnel. And so, like LeBron having trouble handling Jaron Jackson Jr., that just changed everything around for the Lakers because then AD is less available to help. Sometimes he's in the a, a more perilous place on the floor and all that. And it's always true that flawed teams are more at the mercy of the elements, I guess you could call it, you know, player availability, opponent strengths and weaknesses, all that type of stuff. But that element in this series is just going to be a constant struggle. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's important to note is it seems like LeBron, like, really can't move. Like, he, he had not been particularly effective guarding Jaron Jackson, like you said, which was what forced them to switch AD. But if you look at him on offense, even when he's getting, you know, these wing isolations and whatever else, a lot of times he's literally just standing still and holding the ball while guys move around and reading the layers of the defense until he can pick out to which teammate he wants to throw the ball. Like, I I just don't think he's moving right. And I mean, even the, the pass that he made to Malik Beasley for a three from the left, from like the deep left corner to the opposite wing, which was like an incredible pass. All it was was him. He literally just stood there as people moved around and they shifted the defense toward him. And he just flung the ball over the top of everybody right into the shooting pocket. It was a ridiculous pass. But I think it highlighted how he's he's just not moving the way that you need him to move to bend the defense consistently. And a lot of that, I think, is why he's not been you know as effective defensively. And then you look at just I, I noted this after game one where, you know, a lot of the, the ball was in the hands of Austin Reeves and Rui Hachimura a lot down the stretch of that game. LeBron had the ball in his hands only 18.8% of the time the Lakers had were, were on offense in game one. Wow. That is the single lowest out of 131 playoff or play-in games he had played to that point. Like, that, that I think highlights, like, what's kind of going on with there, what's going on there with him. And then just, like, I was kind of surprised that people were surprised the Lakers lost game two, even though Ja was out. Like, it's just not that good of a team. I know they played well over the second half of the season, but, like, it's not like they are one of the best teams in the league still. Like, it's just, especially if LeBron is not fully operational LeBron, like, that that was somewhat surprising to me. Yeah, and I mean, you also go back to the idea, um, Kevin Pelton had the stat of, I think it's now 13 straight, 19 of 20, where the uh, the superior seed loses game one and then wins game two. And it's the idea that, like, you know, those teams are better or at least competitive in the first place, and you don't expect it to be that 0-2 dynamic. And they've mostly won by, I think it's like double digits. But Yeah, I think he said, like, the it's like... 16 and a half points a game and that's including the one team that lost right which is incredible and so i i would say right now preliminarily if i'm i'm through two games thinking that i'm less confident either the lakers or the grizzlies will make long-term noise in the playoffs and that you know again the the steve nadden's injury we'll see what jaw can do like they can be there but like that is the case however I'm very interested in, I mean, it seems like any of the four combinations could happen when you think about the Grizzlies, the Lakers, the Warriors, and the Kings, and some of those could be really compelling. We don't need to go through the second round possibilities now because we'll have plenty of time to do that eventually. 
Plenty more to discuss with Jared Dubin, but first, a message from our new sponsor, FanDuel. Grand slams, no-hitters, and double plays are back, and there's no better place to get in on the MLB action than FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook and official partner of Major League Baseball. New customers in Massachusetts can get on the action with $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place your first just $5 bet. You sign up at FanDuel.com slash Boston, B-O-S-T-O-N. Finally, you can bet on all your favorite sports from the money line to point spreads to player props and more. And of course, you know, I have a basketball focus and there's a lot that you can do there, player props, a lot of really fun stuff going on in the postseason. So bet now on an app that's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Don't miss your chance to get $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. Visit FanDuel.com slash Boston and make every moment more. FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball, must be 21 or older and present in Massachusetts. First online real money wager only, $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as a non-withdrawable bonus bet that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Hope is here. GamblingHelplineMA.org or call 1-800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. Play it smart from the start. GamesenseMA.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234. What have you thought about the first three games of Warriors-Kings? Coming into game three, I thought that the team that won that game was going to win the series. Um, and I kind of still feel that way. What what led you that way? Um, I just thought that if the Warriors were able to win that game without Draymond, then that would kind of propel them through the rest of the series. Um, and obviously, if the Kings had gone up 3-0, that would have been sort of like an insurmountable kind of thing. And like I, I know that it requires the Warriors actually winning a game on the road, which they seem to be completely incapable of doing. But it's not like they were, you know, out of those first two games the entire way. You know, like they were pretty close to winning both of those games and um i i think they can do it like it's not necessarily because of anything the kings have done wrong although what looney is doing to sabonis just playing like all the way deep back into the paint and being like yeah do your handoffs or drive and try to finish over me but i'm not gonna bite on any of your pump fakes and i'm literally not gonna jump at all so you're not getting fouled either I think that that has taken away some of what the Kings do really well offensively. I I often end up sitting next to Colin Ward-Henniger of CBS, and for the game in question, um, Nate wasn't there, so we Colin and I were talking a lot, and he brought up the point when the Warriors played the Houston Rockets that Looney is a perfect defender for Alper and Shangun because Shangun's game is so predicated on fakes and Kevon Ludi doesn't jump in the first place so why is he going to jump for a pump fake and Sabonis is more he does more than that like I mean I think Sabonis's scoring game is more nuanced has more more kind of elements and facets than Shangun's for right now but it's the same general theory of like the elements that make Sabonis really hard to defend for certain other guys aren't necessarily as prevalent for Kevon Looney, and then Looney has to do a lot of work on the glass. He was phenomenal, you know, 20 rebounds in, and almost had almost had double-double with assists in Game 3. And so some of those things aren't really going to change. I think the biggest variable for the Warriors, other than whether they can start getting more from Wiggins and Clay, is those support players. And so they got a much better Jonathan Kaminga, a much better Dante DiVincenzo in Game 3. 
And some of that is the home road thing. That's a part of the story with the Warriors. And But it's understanding where those players fit in. Like, I thought Kerr did a much better job using Moses Moody in circumstances where Moody didn't have to create at all. It was more play finishing and then try and be feisty on the glass and do a little bit defensively. He can be inconsistent on that end. And putting your more limited players in positions to succeed is such an important part of playoff coaching. Absolutely. And and by the way, Looney was one offensive rebound away from joining Moses Malone, Charles Barkley, Dwight Howard, Ben Wallace, and Shaq as the only players with multiple 10-plus offensive rebound, 10-plus defensive rebound games in the playoffs. Um, So not only did he almost have the double-double and almost a double-double of assists and offensive rebounds. Right. um, I mean, a lot of what he did was like Draymond desk last night with the passing and stuff on the on the move and the short roll. Like that dude was just unbelievable, man. Um, Such a good player. And the fact that he's become so durable after missing so much time early in his career is uh, is pretty incredible. It's kind of almost reminiscent of of Steph in terms of the durability aspect where uh, where where early on he missed a bunch of time with like one sort of recurring issue and then all of a sudden became much more durable going into, you know, his late 20s, early 30s. It's a great point. And it's also just, you know, I I love to see anybody who battles injuries find a way through. And Looney's not, you know, the athletic player that he was before, but at least him being on the floor makes a huge difference for the Warriors. And another thing that made a huge difference for them in Game 3 was not throwing the ball over the gym. And Sacramento deserves credit for understanding the Warriors' passes and getting into those spots. I thought Herder in particular in Games 1 and 2 did a better job there. But the Warriors do a lot of unforced errors, and Draymond Green does too. And now the trade-off, just like if you want to talk about certain NFL quarterbacks or plenty of basketball players, is are the good plays worth the bad plays that kind of come with it? And you, at this point, while you know you, you, do, you always want to think like players can – soften some of the edges and do all that like these are going to be part of the Draymond Green experience and just ending fewer possessions without getting a shot up makes a massive difference for the Warriors and it takes some of the Kings transition game out though Sacramento was ridiculously inefficient in transition in game three and I fully expect that to change I can't remember who had uh the stat last night but it was their second lowest turnover rate in the half court of any game this season and I think it was their fifth lowest turnover rate overall for this season which like when you look at how often they turned it over in the first game first two games and especially in game two where they had like a 20% turnover rate or something like that like when all of a sudden you go from losing the turnover battle by a significant margin to winning it when you're a team that and then, then also win the offensive rebound battle by sure. as much as you did last night. Like all of a sudden, you go from pretty clearly losing the possession battle to decisively winning it. And that opens up so much. That opens up so much room for error in terms of you know everything else offensively and defensively. The Warriors had some really weird, bad defense in transition and semi-transition in the third quarter, but. If you're only doing that some of the time, if you're getting the lesson, it's not nearly as big a deal. And so that's the the duality of this series is that I feel a lot better about the Kings now than I did beforehand just because so many of their players were unproven that you just kind of wondered. It's a counterfactual. Generally, teams take a longer time to get this. The Kings and Mike Brown fully embracing their identity, understanding their competitive advantages. That's great. And they'll, they'll need to continue doing that as long as they're in the playoffs. But we have seen... 
some moments of the Warriors defending the way that they'll need to if they want to make some real noise in the postseason. And we've seen some el- some times where their offense has been close to the level that it needs to be. And so I yeah, wonder... I, I want to shout out the Kings defense, too. Yes, so, so much, much better than I thought it would be. Um, you know, I think the one exception has been... I, I think Keegan Murray has seemed kind of overwhelmed um, on both ends of the floor. And last night he just looked like couldn't stop fouling. Um, if... I were Mike Brown, I might think about just starting Malik Monk. Oh, you know, um, and Nate, Nate Roth is up the guy that I would actually start. Malik Monk is a worthy one. He's played better than Davion Mitchell, but Davion Mitchell, you're running into some of the issues with um, player who provides value, but when he comes off the bench, it's kind of hard to utilize it. And so, to match his minutes with Steph when he comes off the bench, exactly. Sure. And so you start you start Mitchell, and Mitchell has done well enough offensively that I don't think it's going to nuke Sacramento's offense. Like I think they'll they'll do fine. Yeah, I mean, so. not last night because nobody did last night except for Fox for the most part, um, and even he didn't shoot particularly well. But um, in the first couple of games, he had been better offensively, and he's not necessarily a shooter where like you have to guard him. But you're not necessarily just, like, totally abandoning him. It makes a huge difference. And and so with Mitchell, and also Mitchell, like, he can, I, we always wish that he could create more advantages himself. But he does a good job of taking, maximizing some of the advantages he creates. He can do some driving, he can use those drives to set other guys up and everything else. And so if you're asking Fox and Sabonis and to a lesser extent Herder to do the heavy lifting offensively, then you're putting... Mitchell in a more manageable box, and I, I think that can work well. And then also that lets Monk have a little bit more rain in those mixed units. But something else that this series is, has done, and, and it's not a surprise when you consider like Mike Brown's familiarity with the Warriors, but also like kind of Steve, Steve Kerr doesn't change the offensive game plan to capitalize on their opponents very often, but he did shift the rotation. And one of those was Alex Len had done a really good job in games one and two. Like it was surprising how well it happened. But then Kerr shifted his rotation, and Steph Curry is now in in the Len minutes, and all of a sudden the Len minutes don't look quite as good. Yeah, um, that's a problem for him when he's out there, when Steph is out there. And I, I'm not sure – I don't think he played in the second half last night, Len, if I'm remembering. Yeah, they, I, I, I think he played wrong. a little bit at the end of the third, but then they went to Trey Lyles at center actually at the beginning of the fourth. Yeah, and Lyles, like everybody else, was not particularly good. Like, I just the Kings like looked kind of like a disaster for most of the game. And I mean, some of that is just like you know, if you shoot league average from three instead of like eleven percent or whatever they shot, like the game is obviously much closer. But it's not like the Warriors shot all that well from three last night either. Basically, nobody except for Steph and Wiggins shot all that well. Um, and I think um, Moody in his minutes shot pretty well as well. But yeah. What's what's so weird about this series? Wiggins, by the way, real quickly. Go ahead. Kudos to him, man. Like that dude does not look like he missed two months. I think he looked very skinny, but the athleticism is very obviously still there, and he doesn't look like tired or anything like that. Like he is handling the minute load just fine. It's been impressive, and Wiggins, of course, is a phenomenal physical talent. But it takes a lot to come back from missing that much time, and and Wiggins rust so. There was a period in earlier in the season where, at that point, it had been his longest absence from NBA, like his longest in-season absence ever, and he looked really rusty for like two weeks coming off that. So you're like, I mean, I was very familiar with it, and so you thought, oh, well, that's going to be what it is. And he's been better than I expected overall, and I I expect him to continue to improve there. But my kind of one of the things that I'm lingering on in the series is 
Now that the Warriors have won Game 3, and obviously that was a must-win because 3-0 is functionally close to insurmountable unless there's a massive injury in the NBA. What I don't feel is the case now is that whoever wins Game 4 wins the series or anything like that. Like I think there could be some ebbs and flows, and it will be hard for the Warriors to win a game in Sacramento. That crowd has been excellent, but I do think it's possible. Yeah, I mean, I felt coming into Game 3 that whoever won that was going to win, and I guess that somewhat follows that like if the Warriors win game four, then then I would say the same thing, I guess if um, I'll be more conflicted if the Kings win game four, because then they'll be up three, one with two home games. And it's like, can the, can the Warriors really win three in a row when two of them are on the road? And like, they're, you know, the equivalent of between the Pistons and the Rockets as a road team. <laughs> it would definitely be a challenge. And, I mean, the Kings would be heavy favorites in the series if they can win game four. And I absolutely think the Kings can't. Um, and and there will be adjustments for, for both sides as we kind of move into that phase. So, I... Yeah, but I but I could see the Warriors sneaking game five or game seven, just if, if they end up, you know, handling their business. I, I don't know that I'd like put them as the favorite necessarily in either of those, but especially because one and two, despite some of their warts and wrinkles, were still close-ish. That means that a little bit of a swing. Now, the, the, the reply to that is Sacramento still hasn't had a game where they've made a respectable amount of their three so far. So... Yeah, but Golden State also hasn't gotten a clay game yet. Sure. Um, he's been he's it, been kind of a little bit rough, and I know he bristled at the shot selection stuff um, after I think that was game one. And he, of course, has earned some latitude. But, like, we haven't had that clay on either end, really, the, like, any sort of a truly dominant performance. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that Sacramento is the team to expect him to have, like, a dominant defensive performance against, like, because— Right, especially uh, not if he ends up on Fox for a single possession. Right. Like, I don't think that you want to put him on Fox for an entire game or anything like that. Like, it's just not worth taxing him with that matchup, um, especially when they have, you know, Wiggins who could do it or they could put Draymond there sometimes or they could have Kaminga come off the bench and do it. Like, there's so or many Or Gary Payton options. when he's not sick. Or, right. Gary Payton. Uh, didn't he? He wasn't just sick. He had some sort of injury also, right? I believe they ruled him out for illness, but he might. I think he's dealing with something else too. I don't know the full story though. What was he dealing with during the regular? It was a knee or an ankle. I don't remember. Everything. Um, give him some Toradol. Um, Apparently yeah. not. That's the joke went a little bit over your head. Yeah. <laughs> Lack of sleep, buddy. Yeah. That, well, that happens when you have a kid. Yeah. Uh, so let, let's kind of think about where where everything where everything is outside of that. Is there any like nuance to any of these series that really stands out to you as something worth discussing? Uh, I mean, the most interesting series to me so far, and I'm going to be there later tonight, is Knicks Cavs. Like, sure. Um, you know, I, I thought the Knicks pretty solidly outplayed them in Game One, even though they only wound up winning. I think by not that much. I think they won. Uh, what did they win by? I think? four or five or something like that and then the Cavs just completely dominated them from start to finish in game two where I mean the Knicks played probably their worst offensive game of the entire season so now having that and like like you mentioned earlier the the home teams after a game one loss have tended to come back and win and win by a lot but now we're going to you know the, the Knicks did take home court with that with that game one win and they're coming home for two games and they weren't an amazing home team this year. Cleveland was not a particularly good road team. And obviously, you know, we saw the atmosphere in Sacramento. I would imagine it will be, if not exactly the same, somewhat similar in New York tonight because that when the Knicks made the playoffs two years ago, it was not like a real 
playoff crowd necessarily because that was uh, the the pandemic season. So now we're going to see like what the the real crowd is like. It's going to be super interesting, especially given how that game two went. Cleveland like so decisively winning after that game one loss. I'm I'm really fascinated to see how the rest of that series plays out. I am too, and especially that huge first half for Darius Garland in game two. Like, what of that can you build on? And they, they get- especially because in the second half of game one, he did not take a single shot, and then to come out um, and do what he did in the first half of game two was like really, really um, good for the Cavs, obviously, and, and really interesting. And like, are they gonna just start Lavert from the jump tonight? They they started him in the second half. Uh, of game two, but Bickerstaff came out after and was like, well, it doesn't mean Isaac is done. Like, who knows what they're going to do? That'll be a key one to watch, and I'm excited Nate and I are doing a playback on, on game three. We already did one for, uh, I think it was game one of that series, in part because it's staggered from the ones that we're attending in person. And staying on the East Coast, I mean, tactically, the Sixers-Net series has been fascinating. Jacques Vaughn throwing a lot of different things at Joel Embiid to make him primarily a passer. And I would say, like, Vaughn has done, to me, he has pushed the right tactical buttons overall. Like, going five out at times, I think, was a reasonable approach, especially, unfortunately, when Nick Claxton gets ejected on a stupid second technical. Stupid, <laughs> stupid, uh, bad officiating, not bad Nick Claxton. And I think it was, it was bad officiating. Like, that shouldn't be a technical. But also, if you already have a technical... It's pretty stupid to, like, dunk and then go run at the guy you dunked on and stare him in the face. You are opening the door for bad things to happen, for sure. That is a completely fair note. Especially in a game where Embiid has already gotten a flagrant and Harden just got tossed for another flagrant. Like, and you know that things are going haywire. Like, in that game especially, don't do that. Fair enough. And so from Philly's perspective, I think it's good to get the reps and to have the have these experiences of what do you do if Embiid gets that sort of attention because that will that will happen to other points. I mean, Maxi's close in game three was massive. I mean, so he didn't score in the first 22, I think, minutes of the second half and then has, I believe, 10 points in the final like five minutes to end up winning the game and functionally close out the series, whether it ends in four or five. Oh, it's um, ending in four. I'll be there tomorrow but uh it's uh the Nets just don't have enough talent like, right and, and and that's i think the potentially useful thing for sean marks is there are a lot of elements this nets team reminds me a little bit not in the way they play but in the kind of the overall theory of there was a magic team a couple of years ago and i had this idea that it's like they ha- these are all good players who make sense with each other but they're but they need someone who's better than all of them to make everyone else work and like Spencer Dinwiddie trying to run things in crunch time. He's not good enough at that. Also, good lord, some of the lobs that have been thrown in this series. Um, but, like, Mikhail Bridges has taken real steps forward, and and I really like Finney Smith as a complimentary piece, and a lot of these uh, kind of other elements, you know, guys like Seth Curry, if, if he's going to stick around, and Joe Harris and everything else. But the problem is it's really hard to get that – big the big fish to get the 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 piece the it's funny because it's not the top of the totem pole technically speaking it's the bottom of the totem pole that is the most structurally significant 
but that foundational piece that slides everyone else into position. And, like, those Orlando Magic teams never got that guy, and so that's why they were more in the, like, fringes of the playoff conversation rather than the center of it. And I I, I don't know that Marks has to do anything now. I'm not saying he needs to trade Mikhail Bridges for four first-round picks if it gets offered again, necessarily. But he does need to make a decision in the next 18 months of what they want. Do they want to be this kind of team or do they want to do a fundamental shift one direction or the other? Yeah, I mean, I would not be surprised if you saw some pretty significant changes um, in the relatively near future there, just because, like, this is not the roster that they planned on having. So you're going to, like, they're going to at some point pivot to what they actually want to do. Um, I think, ironically, somewhat, if you switched Dinwiddie out with Luca. Uh, that mm-hmm. team would be really cooking with some gas because it's like kind of like the team that the Mavs should have should have been building around Luca and and sort of had last year. Like if you if you switched in with Luca and you allowed Bridges to still do what he's done since he got to Brooklyn instead of having Luca run the, like the forty five percent usage rate offense, man, that would be really good. But it's obviously you can't just switch in with Luca and with what the Nets have given up in various trades over the years to get the guys they brought in, they don't have the stockpile of assets to necessarily go get that caliber of guy. Even if they did restock the cupboard a bit with the, you know, the, the Harden trade and the KD trade, um, they didn't get nearly as much for Harden as they gave up to get him. And, you know, they got some good stuff for KD, but they still gave up so much more, you know, in the process of acquiring the guys they've acquired. That's a really healthy way of thinking about it, and I I wonder what like how that dictates where things are going, and, and to walk people just very briefly through where Brooklyn is from a from a draft pick perspective, and that's not all of it. You know, the 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 cupboard in terms of young players is on the thin side. Cam Thomas, Dayron Sharp are, are interesting. I you know I still really like Kessler Edwards, who of course is now in Sacramento. So Brooklyn. They are without entirely their own first-round picks in 24 and 26, and then they they owe swap rights in both 25 and 27. So that means they don't have their own pick entirely until 2028. They do have extras from Phoenix, and, and they have a, a Sixers one a few years down the line, depending on how a few things go. The challenge for it, and this is why I kind of I brought up the idea of the big fish, is they don't have the draft resources to really to get that kind of a player. Like their picks aren't good enough, and also that takes a while. And they have significant salary obligations. They, you know, Bridges is one of, if not the best, non-max, non-minimum contract, non-rookie scale contract in the league. I, I, I love his game. I think he's improved a lot. I think he can fit on a, on onto a lot of a lot of different squads. But they're also presumably about to pay Cam Johnson, and they have all these other players who are on reasonable or reasonable-esque deals. But they're not really going to clear cap space. Maybe they could in 2025, 20, maybe in 24. But it's... Yeah, it's it's just it's just a weird place to be, but we can I'm sure we'll talk about them more in the future. I want to talk about another Atlantic team that well, is real Go quickly. Ahead. They uh, they have a significant albatross weighing down their salary cap for the next few years. Oh well, yes, they because, do. Yeah, I mean they're paying Ben Simmons. I'm looking at it now, seventy eight million dollars in 2024 and 2025. And uh, can you definitively count on getting anything from him? Like, no, not at all. 
You know, uh, you know, even like next year, Joe Harris for twenty million dollars. Like Dinwiddie is is at least you know a, a quality player, but twenty million dollars for him next year. Um, Patty Mills for six and a half million dollars next year. Like they do have a lot of dead weight salary on the books. They do, and so that's going to be something. But does that really matter? I don't think the flexibility for this year is that impactful. It's not like they were going to get into the James Harden free agency derby for whatever reason. I don't think that was <laughs> that was going to happen, or probably the Kyrie free agency derby for whatever reason. Oh God! Um, and so I want to trans. I want to talk about kind of. We'll probably close out with this a different Atlantic team that is has a lot to do this summer, and that is the Toronto Raptors. We got the news earlier on Friday that they are firing Nick Nurse, and it's very hard for me to read the tea leaves in Toronto because if you just looked at firing Nick Nurse, and and there are plenty of reasons why that did happen, I still think highly of him as a coach, though not as highly as he did either at the the peak. You and I did a whole pod where the primary focus was comparing him and Budenholzer back in 2019 when the... (laughs) Raptors won that series and won the title and all that. Like, some of the bloom is off the rose there. But not all of it. He's still a good coach. Um, Maybe not an elite, elite, elite one. But what I'm getting at with the tea leaves is Masai Ujiri can go a lot of different directions. Like, from, we could say the most extremes are staying the course, staying the course plus adding, or tearing a lot of this stuff down. And there are plausible rationales for a lot of those, which is part of why I found the Raptors one of the most compelling teams and sometimes one of the most frustrating over the last few offseasons. And trade deadlines, and that's where I wanted to to hone this, which is the way Masai Ujiri behaved at the trade deadline made me think that he evaluates his team as being like kind of good enough talent-wise, but just needing some other stuff. And that's one way of interpreting the the Nick Nurse firing. And maybe they'll bring in, maybe it's, you know, you bring in Ime Odoka or you bring in new coach X and that's, that's enough. But my personal read is that's not the problem with this team. I think that their, their overall fit, the overall talent level, just if the goal is to do more than be in the playoffs, I don't think they're at that level. And so the challenge for Ujiri is his decision point, and not all of the decisions are his because Van Vliet and Trent Jr. have player options and can do whatever they want, but... If that's the bet he's making, and we're not, we'll find out a lot more in June, July. I think he's making the wrong one. Um, all right, so I've got a lot of different things here. First sure. is um, I would absolutely hire Nurse as my coach in two seconds, as long as I had more than seven good players. <laughs> um, yeah, if you have five, if you have five, then those guys are going into the ground. Yeah, like if I had a deep team, I would hire him in a second. If I had a team like, um, like the Suns or the Cavs, I would not hire him. Uh, because he would just play those guys 44 minutes and nobody else would play and like it would just be it would work out like this Raptors team worked out a little bit second is I think the idea behind what the Raptors wanted to do was very interesting and could have worked if everything had fit together in the right way and I think that you're seeing OKC build a sort of similar team to what the Raptors wanted to do where like everybody is like a super tall guy that can do a bunch of different things at their position and like we'll see how that works out for them. I think that the issue with the Raptors version of those guys is nobody is a good enough passer. Like they're all like acceptable passers for their position. For the most part, some of them are are less than that. Like OG is not, you know, a great passer. And like, you're not going to have OG run a pick and roll and throw like a one hand whip pass to the opposite corner for three. That's never going to happen. Like Pascal, even though he's a, a very good passer for, you know, a combo big guy, like he's not 
a guy who's like an elite bend the defense and like you know throw a pass that you couldn't see coming kind of guy like there was just not enough passing and enough shooting to make it work in the way that they wanted it to work so i think on some level that's why it didn't work out on some level like they haven't gotten the kind of hits in terms of you know their their roster decisions over the last couple of years that they did over the previous three or four years um you know the, the trade acquisitions they brought in did not make as much of an impact as like Kawhi, danny green and marcus old did when they won right you know, they, they brought in like they made the two best roster moves of the season and that won them the title you know and that's just not necessarily replicable over the long term and some of it also is just guys getting stretched into maybe larger roles than they can handle. Like Fred Van Vliet, I think he's a very good player. He's also six foot and 180-something pounds probably. Playing him 40-plus minutes a night is going to wear him down over the course of the year. And he wasn't the kind of guy who was like venturing into the lane and finishing at a high level there to begin with. You know, like it's just it's very taxing what they've asked them to do over the past few years, especially because they really did not have a backup point guard, which, you know, is kind of an issue for a team that sort of struggled with creation in the half court to begin with. So, I mean, I, I don't think that this is the only change that should be made, but I do think that, like, this is also the last point. Like, even if I think Nurse is a good coach and even if I think he could get this team to work, sometimes the message just stops getting through and you need a new voice. Like, sometimes that's just something that needs to happen, and it's entirely possible that this is one of those situations. I think that's a distinct possibility, and I don't know if the Raptors necessarily have a plan for which path they're going to do now. Maybe they want to see where next season goes, though you have to sign a lot of their players beforehand. And I think their problem is actually very similar to the one that I just talked about with Brooklyn, which is they have a lot of talent, but they don't have a lot of talent that makes life easier offensively on their other talent. So, you know, like I, I respect what Pascal Siakam does. And I think that he, at times he can be underappreciated because his style isn't, you know, he's not flashy. He's not the most like intuitive passer. He doesn't have the greatest handle, but he is not well served being the best offensive player on the team. Like that's just not, that's not what Pascal Siakam does best. He's better as a complimentary guy. I would say the same about Fred Van Vliet. And, you know, you can slide guys like OG and Nobis. He's trade is too high and everything else. And we'll see with Scotty Barnes. And so the problem is they needed someone to step up. No one really did. And I think that that to me, it not happening over this period of time means they have a larger problem to solve. And the difference between them and the Nets is, A, this team is a little bit older, and B, they're a little bit more locked, kind of like shaky financially. Like, it's it's a little bit weirder of a situation. Whereas Brooklyn, they just brought this all together. They have a lot of team control. Like, they can, they can take some time to figure it out if they want to. Whereas the Raptors, I think you could see some wandering highs. And yes, they changed reportedly some of the stuff in the extension system. I wouldn't be stunned if OG Ananobi's just looking for something kind of different. Like, just, you know, he, he might just want that. But I don't know exactly what direction Toronto's going to go. And and I think that your point about them not getting a backup point guard is, is such an important one. And it's a, an interesting, notable flaw that a number of different good teams have had. Like, it's been a criticism of mine for the Warriors. And I know that Bob Myers hoped and expected that Jordan Poole would be that guy who could run the offense when Steph Curry was unavailable. But, like... These good teams not having additional supplementary supplementary creators, it, I'm not saying it forces the coach's hand because I think that's an unhealthy perspective, but it does make it significantly harder for them to give reasonable rest to those key players because the team just falls apart when they sit. 
I mean, some of the if the Raptors are gonna make a pivot um, depends on like will Masai accept reasonable return for any of these guys <laughs> instead of like what he's apparently been asking for on the market because. You can't change things up if you're not willing to, like, actually make the move at a certain point, you know? Like, th- there's there's only so much you can do if you're not willing to exchange one player for another player or another set of assets. Like, you can't make changes if you refuse to make changes. Well, also, assets don't always hold their value. And what that can be because a player's closer hitting for agency, or maybe they played worse, or they're a different fit, or even if it was just like they're getting some residue from the situation. Like, that, that is something that can happen as well. And I, one of my concerns is the idea of like, yeah, you, whether you want to frame it in terms of maximizing value or just in terms of additional assessment opportunities, is that the longer they wait, the, the less things turn out and they're not going to get something on the floor. Like, I think something that often gets lost in the shuffle, like there's this like, oh, you traded player X, you traded this for him at one point, and then you then eventually you, you got this for him, like, on the way out. And a lot of times those are, you know, you gave up a lot, and then you got less for him. But, like, you do get the value of that time. But if what the Raptors are in the intermediary is between the fifth and the eighth best team in the Eastern Conference, okay. Yeah, also, like, who cares what you gave up for someone? Like, you know, the, the Knicks traded a protected first-round pick for Cam Reddish, and then they traded him with a first-round pick for Josh Hart. Guess what? They got Josh Hart. It doesn't matter that they, like, didn't get, you know, great value out of Cam Reddish, you know? Like, and then Hart became one of, you know, the four or five most important guys on the team. Like, at, at a certain point, like, everybody talks about the sunk cost fallacy, obviously. You have to be willing to just do what's best for the team instead of what's best for, you know, your your history of asset accumulation. Sure. And Sam Presti is going to have some important, fascinating decisions on that front as well. We've invoked the Thunder a couple of different times. And I guess that's the last thing. This isn't a playoff thing, but I'm going to be fixated on this over the next few months, which is we have the NBA is a number of asset rich teams and there are kind of at different levels of competitiveness. And four teams that have all the first round picks over the next seven years. Exactly. And. When do they start cashing those in, and how do they cash those in? Is it take a lot of guys? Is it consolidate those picks? You know, try to try to get three of them together to move up eight eight selections or something like that. That's sort of a move, and the timing. And, and I mean, for a team, there's also the financial element of it that I think sometimes gets lost in the shuffle, where. Not only does having, like, there aren't that many of these that are, like, super-duper high-end assets, and that's unfortunate, but for that, not for the league, you can go either way. But having, you know, a bunch of first-round picks, once you already have other guys that are going to get expensive, is actually very useful, because they can stay cost-controlled, and if you can get them to be at least a rotation-level player, then you're getting them, and you don't have to negotiate contracts and all that, so... It's not only about how they use those assets, but then the other kind of connected part, and we'll see how the extensions rules fit into this, is who's available. Because you're not going to see, to me, OKC throw everything in for James Harden or, you know, like pending free agent or near free agent player like that. It would be more of the like young player with interest, but usually those guys aren't really made available that often. So like Jalen Brown is an interesting question. There are a number of other ones around the league. And so you need to give up those resources for the right player and the right player is almost never available, but there will be a point where someone is. 
Yeah, one thing I've been talking about with OKC sort of throughout the season is the similarity to the position they're in and the position Cleveland was in last year, where it's like a young team that does better than expected, and they can sort of make their version of a Donovan Mitchell trade mm. this offseason. But OKC, you know, despite not being as good as Cleveland was last year, might somehow actually be in better position than the Cavs were last year because they have Chet Holmgren coming in next year already. We'll have another lottery pick this year and can make a Donovan Mitchell style trade and still have enough first round assets from other teams to make another version of that trade after they do it, which is like, like they have nine first round assets from other teams, whether via swaps or outright picks over the next bunch of years. Like that is insanity. So they can make that kind of trade potentially twice in addition to what they already have and Chet Holmgren coming back. Like, that's pretty crazy. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we're probably a few months away from it, but it's something I'm already thinking about now. Normally, I'd ask you what you're going to be watching for the next little bit. I think we have a good general idea, but are there any specific series, I guess, let's say, other than the ones that you are that you can physically attend because they're in the greater New York area that you're very <laughs> interested in? Well, I'm hopeful that I'll only have to go to one more Net Sixers game. I'm, <laughs> I'm hopeful that that series does not come back to brooklyn um but you know i I think it's the the non-1-8 west series are the ones i'm going to be interested in watching beyond that i think the other series are not going to be particularly close so like memphis and the lakers if jaw can get back or even if he doesn't how that shakes out kings warriors and suns clippers uh particularly if Kawhi can come back um those are the things where I mean, those are kind of the series that seem like they're still up in the air. Everything else, like I know that Bucks Heat is one one. Um, I, I kind of think the Heat are drawn dead in that series. They had to shoot sixty percent from three in Game One to win, and they don't have Hero anymore. Like they just got blown out without Giannis. And I, I kind of think the Bucks can continue doing that through the rest of the series. So, like it, it's Knicks Cavs and it's the the non Nuggets Wolves West series for me. Makes a lot of sense. I I, I largely agree with that. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, man. Always a good time. Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read his work a lot of great places, whoever's smart enough to publish him. But basketball work is primarily at 538. He does great NFL work for CBS. It's also a really good reason to follow Jared Dubin on Twitter at J-A-Dubin5, J-A-D-U-B-I-N, then the number five. Love having him on, and it's great to be back with Real Jam Radio. Of course, you can check out my other work. We'll talk about that very briefly. But if you want to support this show, there are a number of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode using the podcast player of your choice. Real Jam Radio is never going to come out on a specific day of the week, so subscribing, downloading is the way to make it happen. You can also help other people find the show, leaving a rating, review in the podcast player of your choosing, or in-person social media, whatever you want to do to help other people find the show. But most importantly for this show and any other that has them, you can check out our sponsors. For us, that is FanDuel. FanDuel.com slash Boston, B-O-S-T-O-N, and you get $200 in guaranteed bonus bets when you place your first $5 bet, which is awesome. And you can also support me more broadly. Um, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime are full speed ahead. We've now recorded, I think it's six straight days, going to hit seven presumably tonight and then we're also doing a live show on playback for the Cavs Knicks game looks like we will do another one over the weekend preliminarily that's going to be Grizzlies Lakers on Saturday we'll we'll see where that goes entirely 
and I'll have some written work at The Athletic soon enough, being on paternity leave and that stuff taking a little longer to go through the process. Of course, that's going to slow down. Also, I'm still working my way through the preliminary reported stuff on the CBA, so I want to have a more firm grasp on the new CBA before I do any that kind of analysis. But of course, that will be coming in the future. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. And I'm not the greatest at replying, especially now, but I tell you that at the, at the, at the outset. And so I get things that are more like inputty, and I really do appreciate that. But that is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.